In the second half of the lecture on political organization, we will examine the dynamics of chiefdoms and states and the emergence of classes and stratified systems in society. And we'll wrap up with some speculations on the future of political evolution in the human species. Chiefdoms involve formal structures that typically unify several villages. In essence, what we get is the integration of a number of different communities, all of which share a common chiefdom as the apex or central political figure in the society. So there is a permanent position, although kinship still plays a fundamental role in the organization of the chiefdom. As we'll see, the principles of kinship provide an organizational structure for the power of the chief. Chiefdoms are typically agricultural societies, generally practicing intensive agriculture, although in some cases pastoral societies have produced chiefdom-like structures. In the context of the chiefdoms, they manage to acquire a lot of resources that they're able to control and direct to public works. For instance, in the context of Europe, it was the massive um, megalithic structures that were produced by chiefdoms that left evidence of their ability to control large amounts of people and lots of resources over long periods of time. In chiefdoms, one of the patterns of marriage is polygyny. While most men are monogamous in their marriage, powerful men, and chiefs in particular, have the prerogative of taking many wives. And in chiefdoms, this principle is used both to create alliances with people in many different groups, a wife from every group, as well as to produce many offspring that provide the power of the chiefs. It was not uncommon for powerful chiefs to have hundreds of children that they bore across their life. One of the other unusual features that's sometimes associated with chiefdoms is what's called brother-sister marriage or royal marriage. And in this context, a male and a female who are both descendants of a chief, a son and a daughter, may marry one another. And as we'll see, this provides an important political adaptation in a society in which anyone who descends from a chief can potentially become a chief in the future. The political power of chiefdoms is based upon not only the chief as the head of a specific lineage or clan, but also a broader principle in which this one specific lineage or clan is superior to all others. So the rule of a chief is normally based on some notion of hereditary power, some concept of nobility or a God-given special right to rule over the people. So what we find in the context of chiefdoms is an ascribed position, a position given by birth, which may be contested by others who also, by birth, receive this potential right to succeed as the subsequent chief. What we see in the context of chiefdom is a clear integration of secular or social and sacred or religious power. And this is manifested most clearly in the practices of ancestor worship, where the chief's own ancestors are viewed as deities and may be worshiped by the entire society, particularly in communal activities that the chief sponsors to honor his ancestors and to for instance, celebrate harvest. While the chief is generally a supreme ruler in their societies, they may also, to some extent, share powers with consuls. But these consuls are typically made up of their kin and are likely to function more as consultative bodies or bodies that are used to disseminate information of the chief's ruling rather than some kind of independent system of checks and balance. While the chief certainly is in some sense checked by the power of his relatives, by the strength or weakness of alliances, in general, the chief functions as a supreme ruler, as the executive, as the judiciary making laws, and as a tribunal that can pass judgment on people. Political power in chiefdoms is once again based on this hierarchy of clans, the nobles versus the commoners. And within this, there is often a hierarchy of chiefs. So you may have paramount chiefs and district chiefs and local chiefs and village chiefs. So they all exist in a hierarchy of relationships, not only within their own lineages, but with respect to the lineages of the chief as well. This absolute 
system of power based on the chief and his descendants can be inherited upon death by established procedures. So one of the possibilities is that when the chief dies, his son becomes chief, and everybody else in the system, all of the relations that provide the administrative hierarchy for the king, the chieftain, uh, remain in place. And the chief of the previous generation is now the chief of the new generation. No changes in the structure of power. Everything remains the same. That's the ideal. In reality, the succession of chiefdoms is often very difficult. And this is in part due to the fact that anybody who is descended from a previous chief has the right to potentially become a chief. So when one chief dies, there may be fratricide, brothers of the chief fighting to take over power, uh, the chief's own sons fighting among themselves to take over power, and maybe sons, the cousins or nephews of the recently deceased chief, also contending that they too are eligible because they descended from a previous chief as well. So within chiefdoms, there's problems with succession from one chief to the next. And by the same principle, there is power with the extension of jurisdiction over other groups. For instance, what a chief may typically do is use his kin to create an administrative structure. But all of these kin in the administrative structure of the king are chief or potentially leaders in their own right. And they may be able to uh, assume power if the current chief dies. So if he appoints them to administer some distant area, they may decide that maybe they don't need to give their loyalty to the chief anymore. Maybe they can set up their own chiefdom or kingdom. And so as they try to expand the power of the chiefdom using the kinship system that's part of the chief's relatives, it has this inherent instability because these are the very people that can compete with the chief for rulership of this chiefdom. So one of the things that chiefdoms typically do is to create uh, very complicated patterns of succession. Uh, instead of the idea that is associated with some kingdoms, for instance, where the power goes from the king to his eldest son, the chiefdoms may at times use a pattern of descent that goes from the chief to the youngest son figuring that this will allow for a much longer period of stability. If the chief is succeeded by his eldest son, this son may only be 15 years younger than the chief, and in 15 years they're dealing with succession all over again. The chief's youngest son may be 30 or 40 years younger than the chief and may have a much longer longevity in the position. So they try to minimize the transitions between rulers because of the inherent conflicts which exist within the system and because the last thing that the chief wants is to have his own sons waiting for his death so that they can take over his position of power. So the permanent political organization created in chiefdoms represents the foundation of a bureaucracy, but a bureaucracy based upon the principles of kinship. So this office of the chief, which is normally held by males, then creates a system of administrative uh, bureaucracies that can oversee taxation, oversee the military, oversee you know the collection of crops, oversee a variety of other military and political and social activities that help maintain the chiefdom. While chiefdoms are typically based on male power, in some cases females may also hold power, for instance in the role of a queen. However, when this is the case, normally it is a woman who is basically the survivor of a, a marriage with a king who dies without any descendants. And she too has no children. So she may hold this position assisted by male counselors, much as was the case of a Queen Elizabeth. We do, however, find some increased power of women in chiefdoms where women control production and where matrilineal kinship systems prevail. However, even in the matrilineal systems, what's typically the case is that male kin are selected for the ruling positions, uh, while females may play a significant role in the selection of those individuals. One of the foundations of power in the chiefdom is the ability to demand tribute, particularly in crops, some percentage of everybody's crop, as well as to conscript labor, to require that people come and work on specific activities that the chief wants, whether it's a, a palace or a road or some other particular kind of building or structure. 
They have the ability to demand this labor, which they often in turn pay for indirectly through tributes and feasting, or payment to retainers, people who provide certain services for the uh, chief or king, including perhaps the uh, role as being a soldier in the chief's military. So the chief or the king, whatever the particular position is, collects this resource and then distributes it in ways that helps reinforce their own system of power. Chiefdoms, because of their formal bureaucratic structures, because of their continuity over time and positions, are able to be relatively effective in the resolution of conflict. Kingships and chiefdoms often create these consultive bodies within their kin in order to help them resolve disputes. They may also create formal institutions. Sometimes these are formal courts that hear evidence about a case and then decides who is guilty and who gets compensation. There's also other kinds of mechanisms that chiefdoms may develop. These include ordeal systems, where particular kinds of religious activities are used to determine the guilt or innocence of plaintiffs. So for instance, in the video on the cows of Dolo Kempe, you'll see how a chiefdom uses the position of a divinatory oracle who uses an ordeal mechanism to determine who is guilty in the case of a slashing of a cow. So chiefdoms tend to control conflict within their societies by having a regular set of mechanisms by which people may avail themselves to resolve their problems. Uh, but the chiefdoms also create highly stratified societies, and they produce these systems in which particular individuals literally have the power of life and death over others. This reflects the broader concept of stratification. Chiefdoms may maintain stratification systems that are relatively similar to the rank stratification systems based upon kinship hierarchies that were typical of tribes. However, the chief tends to acquire a far greater status and to become an elite within the society, not only in terms of the chief's own lineage and uh, blood relatives, but also an elite between the chief and those relatives. One of the things that the chiefs often try to do is to distance themselves from their kin, to create this gap between their power and that of other people who are related to them through founding ancestors. So this is an effort to restrict the, uh, the privileges of nobility, and at times it gives the king or the chief the opportunity to usurp the power of others, to take over their distribution systems, to tax them as well, or to use their resources in ways that are not consistent with their interest. So the chief may be a relatively um, you know, equal guy with his nobility, with his kin, or the chief may become someone who really tries to separate themselves and reinforce this emergence of a stratified class system in which some people in society have resources and others don't. And it's these kinds of societies where power is permanently concentrated in the hands of a few that contributes to the rise of the next level of political organization, the state system. State systems are typically conceptualized as autonomous political systems that are free from control by any other political systems and which exercise absolute power within their own domain through a hierarchy of power. There have been many parts of the world that have had the evolution of states, not only the old world, ancient Babylonia, uh, but also the new world, like uh, in Peru, where a state system was created. But most of the state systems that were known in antiquity emerged around uh, 3,500 years before the present in what's known as the Fertile Crescent uh, in the Middle East. And here a variety of state systems emerge based not only on an agricultural economy, but on the creation of a highly stratified society that was nourished, that was in essence provided with its wherewithal by a surplus that came from agricultural production. So states sort of reinforce the whole system of extraction of wealth from others and its redistribution to urban centers where in the centers of these states, often cities and uh, other major urban areas, 
they're able to exercise power over a far-flung empire. One of the things that distinguishes the state from the chiefdom is that the state's power and the state's membership is no longer based upon the principles of kinship. While kinship relations will still play an important role in state systems, what is central to the state is the notion of citizenship. Someone who is a member of this society, either by birth or by virtue of the fact that they have been conquered and taken over by this other political entity. One of the things that characterizes the state is a highly centralized and permanent form of government. So much so that in general in state systems, when one supreme leader dies, there is a relatively quick and efficient way of providing another leader. Normally there are specific rules that determine how the next leader will be selected. This is in part due to the control by a class system, by an elite of the broad parameters of the political system and the economy of the society. So the leader or figurehead may change, but what is persistent across the figurehead leaders will be the same systems of class control and the same bureaucracies that were set up by the state system. So when the king dies, because there may be kings that lead states, then there's an existing bureaucracy that provides for the continuity of power, the scribes, the tax collectors, the military, people who regulate business, a variety of other activities that the state controls. So the political organization of the state based on a bureaucracy involves a formal system of specialists who contribute to this central political organization and who provide a basis from which the state can expand and extend itself. If a chief sends his brother to rule some distant conquered area, the brother may decide to make himself a chief. But if the president sends a general to rule a conquered area, there's no precedent for the general to become a president. So there's a greater ability of the state to extend itself and incorporate many communities. Similarly, while states may suffer revolutions, coup d'etats, and overthrow of the central political figurehead, there are concepts about rules of succession and rights to rule that often focus the succession process in a way that allows for very quick movement to the next leader. Part of the typical bureaucratic structures of states include this executive, legislative, and judiciary system in which there are separate and established procedures for carrying out control of society, the making of laws, and the judging of people who may be guilty of their violation. And within this executive, judicial, and legislative organization, there's normally a hierarchy of structures the state is typically defined as having three levels of hierarchy or three levels of command, at least having two levels of organization beyond the local community. So for instance, we call places like Arizona a state. Well, do we have three levels? Well, in fact, we do. We have city governments, we have uh, municipal governments that pertain to counties, and we have the state level government. Of course, we also have a national level government. So here we have at least four distinct levels of hierarchy. One of the things that characterizes the presence of states is its monopoly on the use of legitimate force. In state level societies, individuals are not allowed to take matters into their own hands to extract vengeance on those who do them wrong. If your neighbor throws a rock through your window, you may feel like you have the right to throw a rock through your neighbor's window. But if you do so, you're also guilty of a crime. In states, if you have a grievance against somebody else, there is a legitimate person or organization that you go to, the police, to file a complaint. Or you may sue your neighbor in the court system. But if you take it onto yourself to get payback, then you will be punished by the state. The state not only regulates the internal use of force, but it also regulates the external use of force through an army. And states typically restrict what their individual citizens may do with respect to external political entities, other states. For instance, you as a private citizen 
cannot carry out a war against another country. That's not your prerogative. Only the state may do this. And you can be uh, put in prison by the U.S. government for carrying out insurrections against foreign governments. Governments tend to support one another's monopoly over the use of force, including the control of their own citizens to avoid conflicts between states. In state systems, there is an intimate linkage between the state and the economy. States typically exercise the right to tax people, to control trade, to tax trade, to even prohibit trade in certain kinds of items or engaging in certain kinds of activities. One of the primary ways in which the state gets its power is through the control of the economy and in particular through the control of the surplus produced by members of the state. So the state in essence extracts wealth from a peasant agricultural class that provides the wherewithal to fuel the state, to allow it to have its uh, armies, to pay its scribes, to pay the bureaucracy. Another feature typical of state systems is the presence of private ownership of property. One of the things that is typical in early state systems is that the king, the putative figurehead of a state, may declare that all of the territory is royal territory, that the peasants and others who live and work upon it are working on the king's land. And this is a key mechanism for extracting surplus. So whether a king is the head of a chiefdom or a state depends upon whether the king is functioning in a strictly kinship-based mode, or whether, as for instance occurred in England, the kings had their power checked by these other groups of people in society, uh, people who were known as lords and who came to form a separate strata of power, uh, a class system in what became ultimately uh, Great Britain's empire. So one of the things that's key to state systems is economic expansion and political expansion. They build empires to incorporate other cultures, other societies, and they often colonize them in order to extract wealth from them to support the state system. So for instance, when Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand of Spain authorized Christopher Columbus to go search out India to establish trade relations, they were really looking to use ultimately military force to extract wealth that would support their own kingdom empire. So military activities and warfare can be viewed as basic economic activities within the broader purview of the state system. Within states, there's relatively simple procedures for conflict resolution internally. They have a judiciary system that provides adjudication based upon codified laws and a formal court system that says, these are the things you can do and here are the things you can't do and here are the penalties if you don't. How do states resolve conflicts outside of their boundaries? Well, in some cases, they really don't. Um, they may allow the boundaries itself to be the point of conflict, and states may have military confrontations on their borders lasting from decades to centuries. For instance, 100 years of war between England and France, and now we're going on you know, 60 years of war between India and Pakistan. States may have their conflicts mediated, negotiated, either by their own representatives or by third parties. So, for instance, the long-standing conflict between Egypt and Israel was mediated by Jimmy Carter, who helped create a peace in the region. However, states often use warfare or the threat of warfare to mediate their conflicts. Basically, if you don't do what we want, then we'll send troops in to settle the problem. So conflict resolution in state systems doesn't necessarily really mean a resolution of conflict. It may, may mean the creation of a larger political entity that controls more people, in essence, incorporating populations within the new state. So for instance, in the case of the United States, at one point the US went to war against Mexico over a conflict about a border and about the American settlers in a uh, province of Mexico known as Texas. Ultimately, Texas and the whole Southwest, which was part of Mexico, was incorporated into the United States. A border conflict was, in essence, resolved by taking over all the territories along the border.
So what leads to the emergence of states? Anthropologists have spent decades looking at all kinds of evidence leading to a conclusion about why did state systems emerge at remarkably similar periods of time in the same general area of the world, the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East. What they have come to conclude is that intensive agriculture and the production of a surplus and specialization is a necessary condition. This creates centers of redistribution, trade centers, etc. But that alone doesn't appear to be sufficient for the production of a state. It appears that states may emerge when people face circumscribed land. They no longer can continue to expand their agriculture to new areas. So what they do instead is subordinate the surrounding populations and turn them into producers for their system. One of the notable features of state systems is the presence of long distance trade networks. That this not only provides for the maintenance of food supplies, but often is a key feature in providing luxury items that help maintain elite lifestyles and help define the elite, the upper stratum, the upper class from other members of society. So ecological conditions may be a necessity. States appear to have often emerged in areas that were adapting to conditions of arid land. And in some cases, the creation of irrigation systems appear to have provided the motivation for creation of a state system. In essence, the resources necessary to control an irrigation system spanning dozens of miles may in fact require some kind of complex political hierarchy. The presence of a military also contributes at least to the expansion of states, if not their creation in the first place. But in essence, states don't exist and don't survive without the presence of military force. And while many of the explanations regarding the origin of the emergence of the state have focused on these ecological factors, circumscribed land, arid conditions, irrigation systems, some people have speculated on whether or not these were ecological necessities that led to the emergence of the state, or whether instead the pursuit of a state-level political organization was a deliberate strategy among elites who used the state as an effort to support their own lifestyle, to enhance their own position. So there are multiple factors in the emergence of modern state systems. No single set of circumstances led to the development of every state as far as we know. But one of the pressures that probably contributes to the formation of state systems is elite groups pursuing their own personal advantages by expanding the state system and the economic resources that the system can provide. And this is the underlying reason for the worldwide diffusion of state-level societies. Currently, states dominate the world. The world is organized into less than 200 different states. This seems sort of natural to us today, the members of the United Nations. But just 3,000 years ago, there may have been as million, many as one million independent political entities on the planet, bands, tribes, chiefdoms, and emerging states. Since this point in time, the state systems have come to dominate and incorporate all of these other political entities. So bands, tribes, and chiefdoms still exist around the world, but they are politically subordinated to and incorporated within a state system. Why this reduction? Well, I just ask you to reflect back on the concept of the techno-environmental advantage. So as societies increase their energy uh, production systems, they're able to create larger political structures and control more people. So states did this through not only using agriculture, but ultimately colonizing and controlling other people, extracting the wealth of their societies to benefit the state system. And who benefits? Well, one might say the state as a whole benefits, but once again, this is often an elite strategy. Empire building, colonialism, and mercantile strategies in which one state controls the economy of another can provide broad benefits to a colonizing society. However, as we will see when we look at culture change in the modern world, this often benefits just the elite strata of society. And we'll elaborate upon this more in a subsequent lecture. 
when we look at intergroup conflict and warfare as one of the dynamics of states, we have to ask the question, is this a normal outcome of human nature? Is violence a human universal? What we see is that the scale and nature of violence dramatically changes as societies become more complex. In hunter-gatherer societies, you may have to worry about someone spearing you in the back if you keep fooling around with his wife. And this may end up with your brothers responding and spearing him or some of his kin. But it's relatively limited, and community action may eliminate both parties, deciding that these two groups of people are too problematic to live with us, and they may be banned. When we end up at the level of tribal groups, we see these conflict between kin groups. And these kinds of conflicts may go on for years at a time uh, and for many generations. But they don't normally kill a lot of people. And tribal level societies and chiefdoms may also be afflicted by raiding, where people use force to extract wealth and resources and often women as wives from other groups. But at the level of state systems, we find a dramatically different nature to warfare, where literally hundreds of thousands to millions of armed men may be pitted against one another. And the outcomes of battles, often lasting weeks to months, may number in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people killed. So at the level of state systems, conflict and warfare becomes controlled internally but then externalized, visited upon the enemy, the other. So conflict resolution within state systems generally pr proceeds rather easily within the group. However, externally, these kinds of conflicts may not be as easily resolved. For instance, we have seen the United States engage in a number of protracted warfares. Uh, Vietnam is one that probably precedes most of your memories but it's one in which the U.S. engaged in active combat for 10 years before coming to the conclusion it could not impose its will on a distant uh, country. Today, we're embroiled in another conflict between states in which the U.S. government is attempting to impose a new form of government upon Iraq and finds differing opinions within that country regarding the acceptability of these new proposals. So external conflict resolution is not very effective. Uh, when it comes to state systems. Currently, there is no effective means of resolving conflicts between states. The United Nations is a relatively powerless group in that regard. So mediation and negotiation is central to the dynamics of state systems. And often states are engaged not only in these processes of trying to come to the table, come to an agreement, but at the same time using warfare and fomenting revolution in other states in order to achieve their political ends. So for instance, it is well recognized that Iran has played a significant role in fomenting certain aspects of resistance against the US imposed rule within Iraq. Why would Iran care? Well, for a variety of reasons, including the well recognized fact that as long as the US is tied up in Iraq trying to combat insurgency, it's not gonna have the military forces to turn upon Iran and attempt an invasion of Iran. So how do we explain warfare in the modern world system? When we look at the dynamics of conflict across societies, we find that most of the variation occurs as a function of levels of political complexity. So the idea that it's basically biological doesn't square with the fact that different kinds of societies have very different kinds of patterns of conflict. Some of the cross-cultural studies done by the Embers suggest that warfare may originate in fear of food shortages and that ecological incentives for hoarding food and controlling and protecting one's productive capacities may ultimately extend to extracting those resources from other groups. Many people have considered militarization as a cause of war, and indeed many modern commentators have suggested that building military forces leads to warfare. Why build them if you're not going to use them? The embers suggest that this may not in fact be the case based upon their cross-cultural studies, although their studies do show that the presence of military forces dramatically expands the scope and scale of conflict. One of the things that they note is that alliances often provide important incentives to go to war. If the U.S. had been the only nation 
to send troops to Iraq, it probably would have faced far greater international condemnation and perhaps even a alliance or coalition against the U.S. But instead, by stringing together a coalition of 30 or more nations, the United States managed to garner some degree of international support for its invasions. So one of the things that is central to state systems and to warfare involves resources. How are resources going to be acquired and protected, particularly food? Who within society will receive those resources? The stratification system within the society is often a central determinant of who gets those resources. For instance, how many of you here own stock in Halliburton and are making money off of the billions of dollars being spent in Iraq? Probably not many of you, if any at all. You have to be a member of the elite to really profit from war. But warfare also engages another issue of stratification. The differences at an international scale between the haves and the have-nots, between the developed and underdeveloped nations. And clearly, the major wars that we see occupying the world are often fomented by the haves in trying to expand their scales of control and operation, or in revolutions spawned within the have-nots who attempt to throw off the control systems imposed by powerful states who attempt to extract their surplus and resources. Within modern state systems, the stratification of society is a basic principle. So we will look at the presence and organization of class systems within state societies. Even in the ancient states, there were class systems. These are often referred to as the great traditions and the little traditions. The great traditions refer to the cultural practices of the elite and the royalty, and the little traditions to the cultural practices of the peasants and people engaged in an agricultural lifestyle. These divisions were maintained by class endogamy. Basically, one marries within one's own class. And this helps perpetuate classes as, in essence, subcultures. People in different classes learn different social practices different patterns of behavior that perpetrate access by their kin and exclude others from access to those resources and those uh, kinds of behaviors. So for instance, most of you probably you know, don't have, uh, say, a major portfolio that you need to consult with a financial advisor about in terms of how to manage your stocks and bonds and uh, your available cash and whether or not to uh, sell your gold or hold it. You don't spend two or three or four weeks uh, every summer in Europe, in London or Vienna or Paris and some of the elite hotels. You don't belong to country clubs and uh, spend $250 to play a game of golf on weekday afternoons as part of your business activities. These are prerogatives of the elite. You know, the elite, on the other hand, don't know how to get food stamps, uh, don't worry about whether or not their budgets are going to cover their expenses this month. These are things that poor people worry about. So classes are, in essence, subcultures within a society who, because of a variety of practices, maintain distinct differences among themselves. The major types of class systems in the world are typically characterized in terms of the contrast between closed classes or caste and open classes. The basic difference is whether or not mobility or movement between the classes is permitted. The caste system, based upon the Varnas of India, was a system in which one was born into a particular caste in society. By birth, one was given a certain set of opportunities. One may be eligible to become a warrior, one may be eligible to become a priest, uh, or one may be relegated to the untouchables and until the modern revisions of the Varna system, wasn't even allowed to go to school, was restricted to very specific occupations. In contrast to this caste system, open class systems keep open the idea that one can change, one can get ahead, one may move from poverty to riches, one may become a self-made millionaire. Is this really what happens in class systems? or? Do class systems hold open the possibility of mobility 
as an incentive to get people to buy into the system? We'll look at some answers to that question. Let's look at it from the perspective of the American class system. Do we have an open class? Well, we tend to say yes. But clearly we have a past history. Before 1964, you could look a black man in the eye and say, sorry, we don't hire ends here. And basically say, because you are black, we don't hire you. You can't go to the same school that my kids do. You can't use the public library, and you dang well better not get in the public pool. So we had a caste system as part of America's past, and barely 40 years ago, we began to legally dismantle our caste system. Yet we notice today that African Americans remain disproportionately represented in the lowest socioeconomic classes of our society. We may have abolished the legality of the caste system, but the reality of our caste system is still with us. In our open system, we have limited mobility. But within this system, we have extreme inequality. For instance, economists and social scientists tell us that perhaps as little as 1% of our populace owns almost half of all the wealth in society. We say we suspect because the powerful are able to cover their tracks. We don't know how much they own. We don't necessarily know who the owners of major corporations are. People are able to hide their wealth in trust and other forms of uh, economic organizations that obscure true ownership. Why would they want to obscure it? Well, in part, it's not very American to be too rich, although we say that you can't be too rich. What we have in American society is a tendency to deny the class system, to believe that anybody can get ahead if we work hard enough. But is this true? Americans tend to think that we get ahead in part because of a phenomenon known as structural mobility, which in essence involves class changes between generation, not because of fundamental changes in the nature of uh, the class system, but because of fundamental changes in the economic activities of society. So for instance, when 90% of Americans were farmers, well, this was sort of the lower class of American society. When the Industrial Revolution basically ended family farming and Americans became factory workers, well, this seemed like a movement up. And in this context, we see the emergence of the concept of the middle class. But was the factory worker really any better off than the farm worker? In many cases, they weren't. But it seemed like you got ahead. And then with the transformation from the industrial society to the service economy, well, all these factory workers became clerks in banks, they became school teachers, they took on a variety of white-collar jobs. You know, being a school teacher may seem a lot more prestigious than a plumber, but the fact is plumbers tend to make more than school teachers. So what we have is a perception of movement without any real change in relative position in society. Being a school teacher seems a lot more prestigious than being a farmer, but it doesn't mean that one's relative system in the overall class stratification has been fundamentally altered. Indeed, sociologists who study this mobility suggest that it's relatively rare and that there's probably only about 5% of the population that moves up or down between generations. So why do we have stratification? What about these theoretical perspectives? How do they apply today as opposed to the past? Well, the functionalist perspective would still maintain that we have stratification because it is adaptive. It helps us integrate societies. It helps us reward people who work hard. The conflict perspectives, on the other hand, say that stratification exists and persists because people who have advantages find ways to maintain those advantages. Some examples can help illustrate this. For instance, why are doctors so rich? Why, for instance, is the average salary of an American doctor in excess of $200,000 a year? Is it necessary that doctors get paid this much so that people will go to medical school? Well, if you look at the medical school applications, most people don't say, I want to be a doctor so I can make $200,000 a year. They say, I want to help the poor, I want to work in an underserved community, I want to save lives. They make these 
you know, value-oriented uh, judgments or rationalizations about why they want to be doctors. But who gets to be doctors? Studies done in the 80s showed that almost half of all the people going to medical schools were the sons and daughters of doctors. So the stratification perspective based on the conflict approach would say people get to be doctors because their parents were doctors. Do we need to give big rewards? Well, the case of Russia suggests no. In Russia, most doctors were relatively poorly paid. Many of them, perhaps the majority, were women. There was no lack of people who wanted to go to medical school, even though there was no big economic rewards. So the cross-national perspective suggests that doctors in the United States get to maintain their positions of power based upon some other kinds of control in the economic system. What are those kinds of control? Well, there's a variety of ways in which doctors limit access to their profession. And they also have the ability to demand prices that conflict with basic laws of economics. I'm sure you've all heard of the law of supply and demand. Basic principle. You know, as the supply goes up, the price falls. As the demand goes up, the price increases. So how does this apply to medicine? Well, what happens when more doctors settle in the same place? What if you have one doctor for every 200 people instead of one doctor for every 2,000 people? Where should you pay more for your medical services? Well, basic economics says more doctors per person, lower prices. But the reality is where doctors have the highest concentrations, medical services are the most expensive. So this reflects what the conflict perspectives would maintain, that doctors have class positions that enable them to maintain control of wealth and resources, even in conflict with basic laws of economics. Again, if we turn our attention to African Americans, why are blacks disproportionately poor? Well, clearly one of the reasons has to do with the history of apartheid in America, the caste system created by slavery and the concept of separate but equal facilities. Are blacks able to overcome this? Probably not on their own. One of the things that has been brought to public attention in recent years is the extent to which outsourcing, overseas relocation of American industries has not only hurt the American worker in general, but has disproportionately impacted people who live in urban areas where our industrial core used to be located. So African Americans, in essence, didn't get the opportunity to succeed in American cultural life because people who owned industries acted in their own self-interest. They could make more money moving their companies and the manufacturing plants to Mexico or to Hong Kong instead of paying minimum wage in America. So the continued impoverishment of African Americans would be seen as evidence of the persistence of a class system, the kind that the conflict theorists maintain is the way in which privileged people maintain their advantages. These kinds of advantages may also be included in terms of sexual stratification, differences between male and female, and what's been called the feminization of poverty. The fact that women are four or five times more likely to be impoverished than men in American society. Why are women more likely to be poor? Cross-cultural studies can help clarify this. This isn't always the case. In modern societies, we may not value women's work very much, but women had high status in hunter-gatherer societies for the most part. So just because one's a woman doesn't mean that one's contributions to society will be devalued. Cross-cultural studies suggest that women lose prestige when they no longer contribute to subsistence and production in society. If warfare becomes important, women are less likely to be important. When there's patrilineal residence, women have less power than under matrilocal and matrilineal systems. When markets and economies become important in people's lives, women tend to lose power unless they have the opportunity to participate in those. In general, colonization tends to subordinate women and men and to put colonized men into roles that women previously had as productive members of society, for instance, growing food. Particularly intensive agriculture and its labor demands tend to, for a variety of reasons, restrict women further to the domestic sphere 
and reduce their contributions to the economy. And in more complex societies, domestic work time, for instance, the amount of time it takes to cook rice, uh, means that women have to spend more time gathering firewood and bringing water, and they don't engage in other productive activities. Indeed, as societies become more complex, a variety of social restrictions may be visited upon females in particular that reduce their overall roles in society. So what will supersede our current state system? Will states give up their power? The European Union, the European common market being its predecessor, is a good case example. And while there have been efforts to produce economic integration in Europe, we note that other forms of integration are much more slowly accepted. Europeans may be willing to accept the common currency, the euro, but they're less likely to accept the European Parliament as having the power to dictate their local laws and circumstances. In place of state systems, a variety of other actors have emerged on the international sphere. Cartels, regional economies, and multinational corporations are part of a global system of power and control. Today, things like the oil cartels in the Middle East have far more impact upon Americans' foreign policy than, say, the governments of Latin America. And this reflects the persistence of a global stratification system, the haves and have-nots, the first nations and the third nations and underdeveloped countries of the world. Why do we have such differences? What has been the historical reasons for these separations? In the following lectures, we will look at the consequences of history and the roles of economic and political power in the past in terms of production of the societies of today. So to summarize, politics help meet human needs, and the major forms of political organization have been reflective of subsistence relations in society. The modern world system, is part of this dynamic, one in which intensive agriculture is directly linked to the emergence of the modern state system, and in which global production, the Industrial Revolution, and a variety of colonial forms led to the creation of the modern state system. In the next lecture, we will look at how these dynamics are playing out. What are the inherent dynamics of the world system based on the past? Is there an inevitable trajectory towards the future in terms of political evolution? Do we have choices in the kinds of political structures that humans will create in the future?